From the Haunted Attraction Network, I'm Philip, and this is a bonus episode of our weekly segment of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. We typically air Green Tagged every Monday, and Green Tagged is our weekly commentary show where we break down the news and discuss why it matters to your haunt. Of course, we're still airing Green Tagged episodes, but since our Hauntathon is currently happening, this is going to be treated as a bonus episode. Check your feed for today's regular Hauntathon episode. Anyway, here is Scott Swenson and I with this week's installment of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. From our studios in Los Angeles and Tampa, this is Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. I'm Philip, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Swenson of Scott Swenson Creative Development. Howdy, howdy. So, uh, greetings from, from Tampa. As we are recording this, we are watching, or I'm watching, the giant hurricane that's spinning uh, out of control south of us. So um, keep your fingers crossed that, you know, next week I'll still be here and haven't been washed away. And fingers crossed that I will make it safely to Florida in the middle of the hurricane. Ooh, gosh, maybe. Um, yeah, I'm traveling so, too, so I'm just I'm just getting the heck out of Dodge. That's what it boils down to. It's... Well, we're going to do a little bit of uh, interesting stories today, a, a little bit of a mix. We're going to do some takeaways from some conversations, from some interviews other people have done. And then I have some takeaways from reporting that I have done, uh, both on location and interviews. So it'll be a nice kind of takeaway show to kind of discuss overall trends and, and what people are, are saying and experiencing uh, as we're trying to get through and navigate this, uh, this fall season. First up... Bob Iger gave an interview at Code several, well, last week, a few weeks ago, with Kara Swisher. And I'm going to link to the full panel presentation, the video version, but there's also an audio version if you want to watch that. And I just thought I would summarize some of the takeaways that are key for our audience. They talked about a lot of things. They talked about like Twitter and just, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff. But the, I think the key takeaways for us is, of course, no surprise, but Iger is like doubling down on that Netflix will thrive and that cable's going to die and that Disney, Apple and Amazon are going to also dominate streaming. He doesn't think Netflix will disappear. He thinks that they're pretty good at reacting. So he thinks that those that basically the new cable is going to be Netflix, Disney, Apple or Amazon. And you'll like kind of choose which one you want, which that all dovetails with what what he his strategy, of course, before leaving Disney was, of course, to invest in that so you can become one of the main channels, quote unquote channels, uh, for the new, the new media, uh, you know, cordless era. Uh, he also thinks that customers will tolerate ad disruptions for cheaper fees, which that's, of course, a nod to Disney and, you know, trying to make an ad supported cheaper option. Of, of their streaming Disney Plus. So we talked about that as well previously. Unsure, and we kind of like, we talked about being unsure about whether they would or not. But it sounds like he's uh, basically trying to paint it where like, well, cable will die. And it's essentially the same model as it was with cable where, you know, you, <laughs> yet there are ads in between your content. And, oh, what an innovation. <laughs> where have we seen that before where your ads get, your content gets interrupted by ads. Oh, uh, so he thinks that that's, you know, the customers are going to tolerate that. It'll be fine. Um, and then the last two things is he, he mentioned, you know, coming up with, a, a way to get creators paid, i.e. like, is there going to be 
like basically figuring out a new value metric just because the models are kind of changing. And essentially, if we are on this pendulum and we're penduluming back to the cable, but it's just going to be a, like a new, quote unquote new cable where there's, you know, networks that are just in a different model, you know, that's a different payment model than it has been recently because the, the more recent payment model for creators has been like paid via YouTube or paid via like influencer contract or like, you know, and it's a, just a different model. So he thinks that's going to be a big barrier. And we can talk about that. Cause I kind of agree with that. Like essentially it's, 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 um, the dilemma of what's killing local news, you know, like the model is going to have to change and it might, might go back to a previous model of that. And then the last thing there at the end in the Q and a section, there must've been somebody from our neck of the woods because somebody got up and asked a very pointed question and they specifically mentioned LBE, like location-based entertainment, they, but they said it in LBE. Um, and they referenced the event, the events that Stranger Things have been doing to bring their IP into the world and what he saw the future of that being. And it was hilarious because he was basically completely dismissive of that. He was like, basically why bother it's essentially irrelevant because it's not what they do well and there's not going to be capacity and there's not going to be enough of a rev it's like it's not going to generate enough revenue to be important so it's basically like basically why bother and or just like a marketing stunt kind of a thing and i thought that was a very interesting perspective because us in lbe we have been really talking about those experiences a lot but then when you get the perspective of someone like Bob Iger, who has, you know, worked with, worked at like the helm of a media company, they're like, we don't even care about what Netflix is doing with Stranger Things because it's irrelevant. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> I see. So, uh, Scott, what do you think? Uh, well, gosh, there's a lot to unpackage here. Um, so, first of all, this, I don't see any of this as new. This is just yeah. That was that was surprising. Yeah, none of this is new. This is a big. This is a big cycle. We're just calling it different things. Um, the difference between the way cable rolled out from network network television, um, the way cable rolled out, uh, and and basically, I won't say killed, but yeah, for the most part, killed network television. Um, that's exactly what's happening here, and. Yeah. So when the Showtimes and the HBOs, um, the cable versions came out, and uh, you know you had to you had to have this subscription for this, and this you had to had to have this for this, and this for that, and this for that, and then they realized you know what people don't people get tired of just the two or three things that they can only get from us. So we have mm -hmm. to package, we have to bundle, we have to put things together. Um, even the marketing now on on uh, through Roku and through the the various streaming services is bundles, Disney especially the Disney bundle. You know that's that's a biggie right now. Um, so it's it's very cyclical to me. It seems very much oh okay we're back at that point in the in the process. So you know yeah. as far as um, I, I I don't disagree at all with the Disney Apple and Amazon um, being able to dominate streaming and I will say that just from a consumer standpoint um, and I don't know what the numbers are on this but I'm assuming it's pretty darn good um, looking at the new uh, cuz I would have I would have 
kept Amazon out of that mix until such time as I saw what they were capable of producing with the the Lord of the Rings series, um, the, the Rings yeah. of Power, um, which is some of the most breathtaking cinema I've seen anywhere. So um, all of a sudden that to me is a game changer um, from a from a creative standpoint, from a quality standpoint. Um, so I, I think that we're going to start to see, okay, how do we bundle streaming services and more so than just bundling within the umbrella company? I think that is going to happen. Um, because I think as cable learned, um, guests don't, their, their tastes are not pigeonholed and, yeah. you know, if, if you can, you can use like, for example, uh, Paramount plus can use the fact that they have everything Star Trek ever, 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 ever to get you hooked, but then to stay hooked. I mean, I, okay. I've, I've been watched, binge watched Voyager three times now. I don't need it anymore. I can get rid of it. Goodbye. Um, so in order to keep them, they're going to either have to continue to produce compelling stuff at a level that is ahead of how it's being consumed, or they're going to have to bundle with other folks so that when you get tired of one thing, you go to something else and then you come back to whatever you want. Um, and I think this is happening to a certain extent, but I think it's going to have to happen even more. Uh, and Hey, look, there's commercials on television. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, what a revolutionary concept. Yeah. Um, yeah. Will they be tolerant of it? Y- yes. Um, and and truth be told, it's a lot more like the BBC was, uh, is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's it's like, yes, you, you, you pay and you have commercials, but you pay less if you have commercials. You pay more mm-hmm. for the premium experience. Um, you know, it, yeah. No, no big yeah. surprise there. Everything old is new again. Cycle comes back. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me, it doesn't surprise me at all that he was dismissive of, um, you know, LBE because uh, he knows, based on his past, nobody can do it like, well, nobody can do it like yeah. Disney, first off, and nobody can do it like the the theme parks. You know, I would put Universal yeah. in that in that batch as well. So um, yeah. I I hate to say it, but I kind of agree with him, and that is... You know the the amount of the amount of effort, the amount of money, the amount of planning it takes to do a pop up, um, a pop up uh, Stranger Things. It doesn't translate in the grand scheme of things. It's not going to change the numbers. Um, it yeah. may it may build more devoted fans. It may be something that you know outside companies will want to license from them. But to have to have Netflix go in and say yes, we're going to do Stranger Things pop up park um, doesn't make any sense, you know. And yeah. we've seen this. We've seen this start to happen now with the Harry Potter model. You know, the the Harry Potter the exhibition um, has gone through some radical radical changes. And um, since leaving the the uh, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, or it's about to may have by now i'm going to atlanta but when it goes to atlanta it will be a very very different experience so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting it's interesting to see how this is and you know after all of our discussion about the importance of intellectual property what this says to me is if you're looking long term unless you are a major player a major theme park owner develop your own ip you know and yeah. we've said that too We've said that too. Develop your own IP and find ways to, you know, go to go backwards, to work backwards. You know, kind of the we'll call it the Disney backwash that happened when they started doing films based on their live attractions. Um, when they started yeah. doing Pirates of the Caribbean, when they started doing Haunted Mansion, 
films. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, I think that it, you're going to have to kind of look at that. I, I think that, you know, I don't think we're there yet, but I think long term, that's what we're going to see because, you know, uh, doing a, a Stranger Things, do, building an entire Stranger Things th theme park. Eh, why bother? Because yeah. by the time it's built, by the time it's built, it's it it's quite possible that it will be passe. I mean, it's it's vintage in and of itself because it takes place in the eighties. So um, I, I'm I'm curious to see. I still I still stand on the intellectual property is important, but I'm not one of those who is dyed in the wool. We have to pay super high licensing fees in order. Everything has to have a an IP attached to it, unless it's something you already own. I mean, that's the Disney model. You know, they're, they're yeah. taking Epcot and turning it into Magic Kingdom 2 uh, because yeah. everything now has a, a Disney animated IP connected to it. Um, and uh, and that works for them because they don't have to pay the extra money. <clears throat> so, yeah. again, I would I, I would like push back a tiny bit on that. I, I think that um, just because I'm, I'm thinking back to when I went to Licensing Expo and, you know, it, it was kind of the same thing as as. Bob, where a lot of the brands were dismissive of LBE, even though that was the theme, mm -hmm. you know, like the theme was LBE, but I, and I remember I, I talked about that. I, I think that what I would say the line is, is economies of scale. I think that like, if you can make something with an IP work at scale, like Disney does, like Universal does, like even like Six Flags does, you know, then I think that could work. I think that the problem is that scalability thing where these, pop-up shows are not, they don't, it doesn't make sense because the, the scale isn't there. And in order to have scale, you need infrastructure, right? Back to, back to the old, like, again, pendulum back and forth. Like, you know, wh why did Walt go to Florida to, and got, cause you need space and infrastructure to really make it work, you know? And I think that's, that's the problem that we're, we're struggling. It's like, yes, it, it's fine as a marketing ploy, you know, to do a pop-up experience where it's fine if you're an independent creator and you're able to do just like a, a show in a black box or just, just like things like that. But again, economies of scale, right? Like, I, I think it, that's the thing. Like, is it going to be more financially viable to looking at your scale? Because I agree with you, it is an economy of scale. Um, is it going to be more viable from a pop-up standpoint to take the uh, X amount of dollars that you have to spend just on licensing fees, just to call it the intellectual property yeah. or invest that in the actual quality. And I don't know the answers to that. And it, I think that is going to vary market to market. Um, I will also say that economy of scale also has to do with the longevity of the IP. There are things yeah. that are going to burn hot and burn fast. Um, you know, yeah. for example, there is no Tiger King theme park. Mm hmm. So that's mm -hmm. that's done. Yeah, that IP is yeah. done. Um, yeah. you know, I think we saw this to a certain extent uh, with the with the um, the Avatar brand uh, that came out that got I will say bungled a little bit. Did not have the magnitude that it did. Um, the only reason that it continues to fly as a theme park experience is because it's excellent. So it's that that is where quality, in my opinion, actually trumps. Quality actually trumps IP. Um, yeah. Goodness, thank goodness the quality was there, and and I think that what we're also seeing is, and I use my, I go back to the the uh, Harry Potter the exhibition example. Um, 
you can't rely solely on IP. You have to have the quality to back it up. Yeah. You have to have the quality to back it up. IP gets people in the door. Quality gets people back in the door. So yeah, when I, I think that's that, that 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 also has to do with saturation too. I think that we again, it's pendulum, and, and just like with the escape rooms, remember when it was like, oh, everyone's in an escape room, and then it was like you had to go through that cycle. I think we're getting close to that with pop ups. Like there's there's been a lot of pop ups, you know, a lot of people trying to bring in that stuff, and then some of them are just not not the quality, like you said, and it's just it doesn't. Uh, yeah, but I just wanted to I think also point out too that uh, we were talking about you were surprised Amazon being in there. And actually, um, Amazon, I, I, don't, I don't know if, they, they, they're, if they're spending, how much more they're spending from, from the other people, but um, I know they're spending 14 billion this year in 2022 in original content, which is, um, I, and three quarters I think it's, it's- Star of the Rings. I mean, it, that's, yeah. that's gigantic. That is just- It's, it's a lot. Epic. It's a lot of money in, in original content. And when you just think about like, um, you know, that's more money, when you, when you think about all these, the, the tech money that's in there, it's really more money than we've almost think, ever had. That's more than studios put into it. I mean, that's, that's, it's a lot. Um, and I think that, that dovetails into his point about we're going to have to, content creators are going to shift into a different business model, which I also agree with. But, yes. Um, yes. Well, so, with Amazon, the thing with Amazon is they've got, they're sitting on a ton of money. I mean, they stand on exactly. people don't go to brick and mortar anymore. They, you know, I, I yeah. just, I just ordered my new, my new, uh, my new mouse for my computer. Uh, I ordered it uh, yesterday morning. And by the time I went to bed, it was sitting on my front porch. So um, there you go. Uh, they've got yeah. me coming in round the clock, nonstop. And, you know, this is just another opportunity. That's how they can, that's how they can afford to spend this kind of money. This is, and if it, yeah. I think some of it are, some of them are, some of the people who are doing their finances are perhaps even thinking, gosh, I hope this fails so we can write it off. I mean, cause yeah. they are, they're making money hand over fist and they got to spend it somehow. Well, uh, let's, let's transition out. Um, I'm a, I have some takeaways from either events I've been to or conversations, uh, interviews that we've done with the Hauntathon. Um, the first, of course, is that I went to Hershey Park for the Hershey Park Halloween experience this year, which is called Dark Nights at Hershey Park. And it was a new, you know, this year was their first foray into trying to do something a little bit more scary. Mm -hmm. So not, I, I wouldn't say that it's like the universal market. It's, I think it's more targeting like 12 to 15, kind of that, that like tween range, but it is supposed to be scary. Uh, and they're they're kind of ranked mazes, but what I was astounded by was the quality in year one. I think it goes to exactly what Scott just mentioned about like they're not going to come back because I I did kind of I don't know. This is one of those things where I, I I was so surprised with the quality that I kept trying to get them to comment on why. And they didn't really, like, they didn't really ever, like, it's like one of those things where, like, we're not going to talk to, like, a reporter about that. But I was like, uh, but I would, because it's just, it, it's so unusual. So uh, th here's a year one event at a regional park, and they launched with four haunted houses that were built by Adirondack Studios. So just imagine the price tag for that, right? Um, RWS handled their, their casting and, and staffing for the, the scares and the costumes also, price tag. Um, Epic wrote some of the storylines for their pieces. Again, you know, it's very expensive. So they launched with four out of the gate. Then they had scare zones, which one of, one of which 
they had a huge midway sign with fire that was going off every 30 seconds. So again, a lot of fog. Uh, and then they also added a tribute store and themed food and beverage. So that's a lot. I and mean, that is a lot for a year one event. Very expensive. The fabrication was excellent because Adirondack does excellent work, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's very, I was, I, and I kind of was like, why on earth? I mean, this is a lot. You know, you could have tested it with one or you know, just, this is a lot for, and basically what I finally put together, I have no quote, so I, but so this is me just kind of like summarizing because they wouldn't give me a like kind of direct answer. Um, basically, it's exactly what Scott said. They were afraid that it wouldn't be a good test if they didn't test it in a quality product, A. B, they, they feel they're known for quality in their area and their pass holders are known for quality. And they are just coming off of a, what, a $200 million renovation of Chocolate Town. Mm -hmm. So they, they didn't want to put out anything that was kind of like under less investment than their brand. And then when I kind of was like, well, longevity or what, basically they're like, this is a test. If we have to cut it, we'll cut it. You know, and if, if we have to like adjust the scares or, you know, cause they were still playing with how scared, you know, how, how much do you scare a 12 year old who has never been to a haunted house before? They're still, they were still really playing with that. And they're like, you know what, if it doesn't work, we're going to cut it. And I'm like, you're going to cut this thing that I'm sure it must've cost millions. And they're kind of like, wouldn't give me a direct answer, but kind of like shrugging. So it's kind of like, and I feel like that's what's necessary now is like make, if you're going to test it, test it right. And then like Scott's also talked about, we've talked about a lot on the show, be prepared to kind of like to kill your darlings, basically. Like if it does, if it turns out terrible and their audience ends up hating scary, you know, you might need to cut it. That's, and they're like kind of prepared to do what's, what the audience wants. I think that's, that, that's very admirable, but also very shocking. Um, now I will say that the, the, I was talking to guests while I was there and a, a lot of them seemed to love it. And again, it was, it was a, as, as with a lot of things park related, right? I think the older, the older like uh, theme park, I, I, don't, I don't know, the, the older guys <laughs> that are like middle age or, you know, our, our age or whatever, like the, the older theme park guys are just like coasters and like Universal, they were less impressed because, you know, again, they're, it's meant for 12 year olds, right? So they were, they were like, kind of grumpy about it and the lines and blah, blah, blah. But the actual 12 year olds and the families loved it. So I feel like it's, I think it's gonna be, end up being positive because all the families I talked to who were in the age range and who were, you know, whether or not they were pass holders or not, they all seemed to really enjoy it. And I, I went through with, with one family to watch their reactions and the kids were like, I mean, it might not have been scary for adults, but the kids were like, like falling into walls and trying to find the emergency exits. Like it was, it was like a, I, yeah, I was like, are you pretending? And I don't think they were. So again, I don't know the current Hershey regime, but I did know the Hershey regime years ago when I was still in the, on the, on the other side of, of what I do. And, um, the Hershey has always been known for quality. Hershey Park has always yeah. prided themselves on we are going to do the best we can do with the assets and the the funds that we have. So it does not surprise me one mo for one moment that they brought in some pretty heavy hitters, um, some pretty heavy hitting outside companies to uh, to put this together for them. Um, I I will say that uh, this to me 
sounds like a really smart long-term plan. Mm -hmm. I think that the idea of targeting your 12 and 13 year olds, if you're not sure how scary to be, um, hook them at 12 and 13 and then ramp it up as they grow up. So you can let, uh, you know, as, as you've already mentioned, they're doing what the guests want. I think what's going to happen is next year they're going to find that the 12 and 13 year olds have uh, that they've trained because you have to recognize you have to train your audience when you do something new. Exactly. You can't just exactly. all of a sudden exactly. go, here's what I'm doing. Love it or leave it. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is you've got you, you've hooked if you can hook in your 12 to 14 year olds and then next year, you know, they come back as 13 to 50, 15 year olds and the next year they come back as 14 to 16 year olds. Uh, pretty soon you're going to have to start including more and more alcoholic um, beverages involved in your F and B mix because they're going to be 21. They're going to be drinking age now and they're still going to mm -hmm. want to come back and you want to hook them that in one more year. Now, when you add alcohol or when you increase your alcohol sales, there are a bunch of other things that go along with that. But my point being, it sounds like uh, based on your, on your anecdotal observations that they've hooked, they've hooked the right audience at the right time and if they need to know how to continue to get scary and how to continue to expand the event and make it something new and fresh, they can do that by simply following the target age, the target demographic age um, of, of their guests. And what will happen is the 13, 14 year olds who loved it now will have six and seven year old brothers and sisters who are too young to do it. So what they do is they start getting that milestone mentality of when I turn 14, I get to go to Hershey Park and I get to get scared. And um, so it's it sounds like they've made some very intelligent choices for the long term. And I think that that aiming in that in that middle zone as opposed to doing we're going to do kid kid family friendly to yeah, start out with and yeah. then ramp it up as we go or we're going to just slap them in the face with blood guts and gore. They didn't. They went very intelligently, which is the the tween range, which there's a lot of money to be made there because with working parents, they will be more yeah. than happy to find something they can do with their 12 year olds. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. They're looking for yeah. they're looking for ways. To say, you know, sorry, I, I'm not here during the day, but here's something special that we can all do together as a family yeah. of tweens and teens. That so, was something yeah. I was thinking of too. Is I was like, oh, there's a lot of generations here at the event. Uh, you know, together and you know, also the meteors is scary. Also, when you mentioned blood and gore, they made the definitive decision not to include any blood or gore because they thought it was off-brand, which is difficult to do to make four houses without blood. And, you know, it, it's, um, I think they did a good job. They also did a, well, not, I mean, you know what I mean, but um, it's very, again, very in-depth storylines. Everything kind of fits, you know, it fits like the, again, we, we talked previously when the event was announced about how like, I got a lot of questions from people about why they couldn't just do like evil candy obviously you don't want to do that because that's going to you know hurt the brand but what they did do is they they tried to create stories that could kind of live again in the ip like scott was talking about too live in the like the hershey ecosystem that could live there adjacently but just weren't about candy so when one of them the scariest one you are venturing in the tunnels underneath hershey park you know so and and you're encountering kind of it's an like an underwater slash cave type thing and there's creatures in there and then one they've tied in some wildlife from the area and been like a creature experiment so they're all like 
tangentially related. Like there's one that's about a, a haunted mine because there's a mine, there used to be mines in the area. So mm-hmm. I mean, they've tried to tangentially fit them into that you know, local ecosystem, which I think also helps, you know, because again, it's a regional park and regional parks, people care about more about the local stuff. So, mm-hmm. so uh, yes. So anyway, I think that that was a, a very interesting experience to see that they're all doing that um, correctly. Um, Another one I, I spoke with was our our friend Teresa over at uh, Dark at Fort Edmonton Park, and there this is year five for them, and they're really what struck me about our conversation was really again is always strikes me with Teresa, but just her their their forethought, their thought and planning and long term kind of planning, but they're they're now really moving into trying to flesh out the festival environment, which they couldn't do the first few years they were open because they were under construction. And so they're really working on that. And some key things is they're, they're thinking about expanding their festival environment so that in the future, they could potentially add just a general admission, like midway ticket, that would be a lower, again, a cheaper option for people to get access to it if they don't want to do the mazes, if they're too scared. Because think about think about these areas like regional parks or areas where they're not universal around you. The people are much more scared. They don't. They may not want to, and that's what they're finding is that they may not want to do this haunt. So having that general admission, if there's enough offerings, again, if there's a quality to it, there's enough to do, it could be an alternative to let the entire family come for cheaper. So they do, and, and then the, some people don't want to get scared, don't have to get scared. I think that's brilliant. Um, she mentioned too that services have really gone up, which is not something we've talked about, but the inflation on services for them has been huge. And that's generally not something you get a quote for until later in the game. So I thought that was a big thing. Um, and then I loved her line, creativity doesn't just live within haunt design you know, mentioning about how their team had been creative about when the services contracts were higher than they expected, moving things around and really trying to make it work because you need services, you need security, right? So you have to, you have, and you have to make it work. But I just thought that was really interesting. They've also kept some of their offerings. They've kept the most popular offerings from the pandemic when they were remote. So now they have a whole nother revenue item that they wouldn't even have known about, right? If it wasn't for the pandemic, so. So I'm, I'm. This particular event lives very much in my heart because I was, I was involved with the very first year and and involved to a certain extent in the second year, but um, the uh, the the true gem of this event is their internal team. Um, yeah, I agree. Teresa's brilliant. She's she, and and her team. They're just they're just all so smart and so willing to try and so eager. Um, kind of in line with what we were talking about with Hershey. They want to do it right. They want to make mm-hmm. sure that they they dive in, do it right, test it appropriately, and then adjust from there. They're not trying to test soft. Um, I think it's interesting that they're going more to a festival feel, which makes total sense in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, because Edmonton is the festival capital of the world. Um, there is, If you look at a calendar, there is not a single day on the calendar that some festival is not going on in Edmonton. That's true. So um, this makes total sense for their for their uh, their locale, and it also means that guests don't have to um, 
don't have to wait in queue. The biggest challenge that I think they have with their with their outside stuff is it's cold. Now, I realize yeah. that that Canadians in that area are used to this. Um, the Floridian guy was freezing, but they also find the fun in these giant bonfires and these giant uh, you know ways to warm around it. It becomes very communal, and I think that that also plays into the magic of the the Halloween season and the fall season. If you have a chance and you're in um, in or near uh, Edmonton, Alberta, go see Dark at Fort Edmonton Park because it really is a very special event and it will continue to grow into something even more special year after year. Um, the reason I kind of rushed through that is because guess what? We're out of time. So uh, thank you guys again for listening. As I always say, spread the word, let people know about us. Uh, and if you, and if you, uh, don't enjoy us then just keep your mouth shut on behalf of philip and myself thank you so much and we'll see you next week today's episode was produced and edited by me philip hernandez with post-production by david swope and original music composed by chris thomas we're counting down to halloween with daily podcasts videos and events in our 61 day hauntathon follow along at the link in our show notes. Our Hauntathon is made possible through generous support from Gantam Lighting and Controls. Gantam illuminates attractions worldwide with the world's smallest intelligent spotlights. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. That's gantam.com demo. Our Hauntathon team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Omni Adventures. Our partners for this year's Hauntathon include Sharp Productions, HorrorBuzz.com, ScareTrack, TheScareFactor.com, and Hauntopic Radio. The best way you can support us this Halloween season is by sharing our Hauntathon with someone you think will enjoy it. And to follow along to our Hauntathon, sign up for our weekly newsletter at HauntedAttractionNetwork.com. We'll catch you back here tomorrow and every day until Halloween. This is a Haunted Attraction Network presentation.